This is a recording of Experiential Knowledge and the Covenantal Relationship in Alma 7 by Godfrey J. Ellis, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 51, 2022, read by Godfrey J. Ellis. Experiential Knowledge and the Covenantal Relationship in Alma 7 by Godfrey J. Ellis, Abstract. A favorite scripture of many faithful saints is Alma 7, where it describes how the Savior came to earth to understand in the flesh not only human sin, but human suffering. He did this in order to succor and heal us. Despite its obvious appeal, two points may seem curious to some readers. First, the doctrinal power of verses 11 through 13 which form a chiasm, has as its apex not the mercy in succoring us, as might be expected, but the in-the-flesh detail. Why? Upon closer examination, it appears that in addition to performing the atonement, Christ needed a mortal experience in order to add a complete experiential knowledge to his omniscient cognitive knowledge. That could only be obtained in its fullness according to the flesh, hence the emphasis in the chiasm. A second possible curiosity is that Alma ends his beautiful teaching with his brief testimony, which lends an air of closure. Then the topic appears to change completely and seemingly inexplicably to a discussion of repentance and baptism. Again, why? Closer examination reveals that the next two verses, 14 to 15, form a second chiasm. If the first chiasm can be viewed as a statement of what Christ offers to us, the second may be viewed as what we offer Christ. He runs to us in 7 verses 11 to 13. We run to him in 7 verses 14 to 15. When viewed together, the two chiasms form a two-way covenantal relationship, which Alma promises will result in our eternal salvation. Main text. One of the masterpieces within the Book of Mormon is surely the one-chapter gem of Alma 7. Alma himself proclaims his description of the mission of Christ to be one thing which is of more importance than they all. Grant Hardy points out that, quoting Gideon, Alma is straightforward with some of the clearest prophecies in the Book of Mormon of Jesus' life. End quote. Truly, the explication of Christ's mission and the way to access the gift of healing power are priceless messages to the people of Gideon, to the church, and to the world. Main heading, background and overview for the discourse of Alma 7. The backstory for the power discourse of Alma is that he had been serving in Zarahemla as the chief judge over the land. He then made the decision to transfer his considerable political, military, administrative, and prosecutorial power of the judgment seat to a, quote, wise man, end quote, Alma 4, 16-17. However, he retained his position as high priest over the church so that he, he could concentrate on preaching, 
quote, in pure testimony, end quote, Alma 419. Alma began that preaching in his own capital city where, after much labor, he enjoyed success in bringing the faithful of the city back to the fold and establishing the order of the church in the city of Zarahemla, end quote, Alma 6.4. Fueled by that success, Alma then traveled to the recently built city of Gideon. Alma chapter 7 is wholly self-contained. It begins with Alma explaining that he had been too occupied with his administration to come earlier. And he begins his preaching in Gideon by saying, quote, This is the first time that I've spoken unto you by the words of my mouth, end quote, i.e. in person, Alma 7.1. Alma then spends the next six verses in an inspired introduction, expressing his trust that the people of Gideon were not, quote, in a state of so much unbelief as were your brethren, end quote, meaning the people of Zarahemla, that they were less materially focused and they did, they did not, quote, worship idols, but that they did worship the true and living God, end quote, Alma 7, 6. Alma opens the formal part of the sermon with a description of the need for the people to, quote, prepare the way of the Lord, end quote, because, quote, the Son of God cometh, end quote, Alma 7, 9. He then extends several prophecies about the birth of the Savior to the Virgin Mary, who would, quote, bring forth the Son of God, end quote, Alma 7, 10. It is the next three verses, Alma 7, 11 through 13, which present the comforting concept of a merciful God who runs to succor us that have provided such incredible comfort to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Latter-day Saints. On a personal note, I remember being taught a very different view when I was 10 or 11 and a member of a different church. I was taught that Christ was tempted but resisted. He suffered but overcame. And those temptations allowed him to obtain the moral standing and authority to judge us and then to condemn us for failing to resist our own temptations and for giving in to our own suffering. I remember the teacher of that church basing that interpretation on Hebrews 4.15, quote, Jesus was tempted like as we are, yet without sin, end quote. It, it seemed as if I were being taught that Jesus was saying, quote, I resisted that same temptation. I didn't sin. It was easy. Why couldn't you have resisted too? Why did you sin? End quote. Imagine my joy a few years later when I learned of the corrective knowledge of the restoration and specifically these verses in Alma 7, 11 through 13. I learned that the true purpose of Christ's condescension, 1 Nephi 11, 16 and 26, and his mission was not to condemn us at all. It was to empathetically understand us, reassuringly comfort us, and completely succor us with, quote, healing in his wings, end quote. Malachi 4, 2, and 2 Nephi 25, 13. It was as if Christ's true purpose was suddenly clarified for me. He was really saying something more like, quote, I faced that same temptation. It was terrible here. Let me wipe your tears and put my arms around you to comfort and console you. Don't despair. Together we'll get through this. Lean on me. I'll help you. 
I'll lift you, I'll carry you, end quote. The discovery of that difference was life-changing. Alma 7 has remained one of my favorite sermons ever since. Fiona and Terrell Gibbons have expressed God's motivation to elevate us in these words, quote, Our heavenly parents created us for our glory, not for theirs. And Christ orients his entire divine activity around the grand project of bringing us to where he is. How can we not adore such a one? End quote. Next heading, the multidimensional message of verses 11 through 13. The three verses of Alma 7, 11 through 13, most clearly present this glorious message of empathetic understanding and complete healing. And that is how Alma's lesson is almost universally taught in the restored church. The key element of these verses is appropriately taught and learned with an emphasis on the comfort and succor they offer. The word succor comes from the Latin succurir, meaning to run to the help of. And this element of running to help is often rightly stressed in lessons and writings and in sermons that focus on his tremendous and loving willingness to take upon his own back our pains and infirmities and to heal us from our pains. In writing about the condescension of Christ, Gerald Lund drew a comparison with the father of the prodigal son. Quote, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That's from Luke 15:20. Lund continues, It was not required that the son come all the way back. The father was watching and went out to meet him while he was yet a long way off, end quote. Writing about running to heal us, even though we are a long way off, Elder Holland wrote that, quote, the atonement brings an additional kind of rebirth. With his mighty arm around us and lifting us, we face life more joyfully, even as we face death more triumphantly, end quote. Usually less emphasized, at least using these specific three verses, is the resurrection itself, i.e. that he would die and take back his body, thus bursting the bands or bonds of death, so that we too may rise again to be with him. That point is strongly made in other scriptural verses, and its importance cannot be overly stressed, but it's not the main emphasis in Alma 7. Instead, the emphasis of these three verses is almost always focused on the succoring and the healing aspect. The knowledge of the ability of Christ to comfort and succor has been a priceless gift of these few verses for almost 200 years. It leaps off the page in the traditional chapter and verse format. But that is not all. When examined in parallelistic format, these words turn out to form an elegant and, and powerful ancient chiasm. That chiasm, when examined, seems to switch the emphasis of Alma 7, 11 to 13 from the why of the great sacrifice to the how. Before explaining this, let me remind the reader that not all chiasms can pass muster as 
intentional, i.e. real chiasms, rather than inadvertent, i.e. false. In the case of Alma 7, 11 through 13, there seems to be no question and no debate about its authenticity as a parallelistic unit. So let's, let's examine it in detail. Note that the structure below is not mine alone. It was also identified in at least two other studies, those of Alan C. Minor and of Donald Perry. These same verses are also presented as a chiasm on the Book of Mormon Central website. <clears throat> the verses are outlined below. A1, he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. B1, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, he will take upon him the pains and the sickness of his people. C1, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. D1, and he will take upon him their infirmities. E1, that his bowels may be filled with mercy. F1, according to the flesh. Now, F2, that he may know according to the flesh, E2, how to succor his people, D2, according to their infirmities, C2. Now the Spirit knoweth all things, nevertheless the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, B2, that he may take upon him the sins of his people, and A2, that he may blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. One change that I've made differs from how Donald Perry presented this chiasm. It agrees with the Book of Mormon Central. Admittedly, the phrase, Now the Spirit knoweth all things, which is C2, is something of an outlier. It's not clear where it fits. Perry presented this phrase as a part of D2. But putting according to their infirmities together with now the spirit knoweth all things doesn't seem to fit logically. It might even suggest that the spirit knows about the infirmities, which seems to be the exact opposite of the, of the overall message of the chiasm. The spirit doesn't know about the infirmities. The flesh does. That's why the comfort of Jesus is explicitly based on because of, according to, or in the flesh. Placing the phrase in C2, which is how it's presented in the Book of Mormon Central, suggests that while Christ had spirit knowledge, nevertheless, quote, he needed to suffer in the flesh, quote, for some reason. Spirit knowledge was not enough. He needed flesh in order to take upon him death, C1, and to experience human suffering, C2, quote, according to the flesh, end quote. Now, this is the third time that the phrase according to the flesh is used, so it's clearly critically important. As mentioned above, it moves from the why of the sacrifice to provide the how, thus explaining the placement of the connecting word Nevertheless, even though the spirit knoweth all things cognitively, that was not enough. Christ needed knowledge that could only come from the experience according to the flesh. That small modification is critically important, as we will see.
Viewing the three verses of 11 through 13 in chiastic format appears to provide two important insights that may come as a surprise to some readers. The first and biggest surprise concerns the apex or climax at the center of the chiasm. Neil Rapoli has provided a literature review of various scholars who have developed rules or sets of criteria for evaluating the validity of proposed chiasms. The majority of these scholars specifically identified the apex of any chiasm as the most important part. It is the apex that serves as the, quote, climax, end quote, quote, crescendo, end quote, or, quote, turning point, end quote, of the entire parallelistic unit. Everything hinges on that turning point. The scriptural insight or lesson of the first part of the chiasm has built up to that apex and then will be repeated in inverse order as it steps down from the apex. Often that apex is a single concept or idea. Other times it is a concept or idea that is twinned, most likely for emphasis. In either case, the apex represents the point of the chiasm, both the structural point and the conceptual point. As John Welch noted in the Rapoli article, quote, the central section of any chiasm should be marked and highly accentuated, end quote. In the same article, Craig Bloomberg stated, quote, the center is the climax and should be a significant passage worthy of that position, end quote. John Breck called the apex the, quote, thematic center, end quote. The various scholars differed in their certainty of the elements from calling the elements merely constraints or requirements and even laws, but all agree on the importance of the apex. A climax, a turning point, should be found at the center. So, what is the thematic center or significant climax or turning point of verses 11 through 13? As mentioned earlier, most sermons, lessons, and published commentaries rightly stress the healing and comforting power that comes from knowing that Christ fully and completely understands mortal sin, pain, and infirmity. This has been of great significance to me and to millions of others. Therefore, the obvious expectation is that this emphasis of healing our wounds should also be the apex, climax, thematic center, and turning point of the verses when viewed as a chiasm. But it is not. The twinned apex of the chiasm emphasizes instead Christ's own learning, quote, that he may know according to the flesh, end quote. That's the F-steps. This is repeated twice, presumably for emphasis. That his, quote, bowels are filled with mercy, end quote, and that he wants to run to us or succor us if paired in the next and lower E-steps. This seems significant. Why would this be the case? What is Alma saying to us? What does he want us to learn from this? These are the fundamental questions that I will address in this first section of the paper. One of the primary reasons for our travel through this, quote, land of darkness and shadow of death, end quote, that from Job 12, 20 to 21, is so that we can 
directly experience the challenges of mortality and then learn to exercise our agency. Quote, for it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. End quote. Second Nephi 2.11. We are told that's the very purpose of life. Quote, true happiness comes from the personal spiritual growth that rises out of the fires of mortal experience. Trials, then, are a fundamental part of the plan of life. Mortality would be a testing period during which we could learn how well we would use our agency when away from Father's presence. End quote. New heading, cognitive and experiential knowledge. What is the difference? I suggest that there's a major distinction between cognitive learning and experiential learning. To be sure, we are to gain cognitive knowledge during our mortal journey. We admonished in DNC 1915 to, quote, set in order the churches and study and learn and become acquainted with all good books and with languages, tongues, and people, end quote. The Book of Mormon endorses cognitive learning when it tells us that, quote, to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God, end quote, 2 Nephi 9.29. In D&Z 88.1.18, we're told, quote, Seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study, and also by faith, end quote. Why? Because, quote, whatever principle of an intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will arise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life, through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. DNC 130, end quote, DNC 130, 18 to 19. Modern apostles have concurred. President Henry B. Eyring noted that, quote, you are interested in education, not just for mortal life, but for eternal life. When you see that reality clearly with spiritual light, you will put spiritual learning first and yet not slight the secular learning. In fact, you will work harder at your secular learning than you would without that spiritual vision. Our education must never stop. If it ends at the door of the classroom on graduation day, we will fail. End quote. President Russell M. Nelson has admonished, Your mind is precious. It is sacred. Therefore, the education of one's mind is also sacred. Indeed, education is a religious responsibility. Our Creator expects His children everywhere to gain an education as a personal endeavor. End quote. That is all primarily cognitive knowledge, and it is a blessing from God. It might be noted that the acquisition of deep cognitive knowledge has historically been and still is an extremely rare privilege in the world. And few have the opportunity to receive it in any depth. That may be why the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge are separate and distinct spiritual gifts. DNC 46, 7 to 18. And, quote, all have not every gift. End quote. DNC 46, 11. Even more important than the 
primary learning from the tree of knowledge, Moses 3.9, is to gain experiential knowledge. Far from being a rare privilege, that particular type of knowledge is poured out in often frustrating abundance upon every human being without exception because of their mortal experiences. As Robert Millet has explained, experiential knowledge will be thrust upon us by the nature of the world into which we are born. Quote, We do not believe, as did John Calvin, that men and women are, are by virtue of the fall, depraved creatures. We do not believe, as did Martin Luther, that men and women are so inclined to evil that they do not have even the capacity to choose good on their own. We do not believe, as does much of the Christian world, that because of the fall, little children are subject to an original sin. However, to say that we do not inherit an original sin through the fall is not to say that we do not inherit a fallen nature and thus the capacity to sin. Fallenness and mortality are inherited. They come to us as a natural consequence of the second estate. An analogy that may highlight this important distinction between cognitive and experiential learning comes from the field of medicine. Let's suppose that uh, a world-renowned male gynecologist and obstetrician had delivered thousands of babies under all conditions and faced dozens of fetal emergencies. Let's further suppose that he had presented hundreds of professional papers published scholarly articles and books, taught interns, and knew more about birth than any woman ever knew, still his vast understanding would be restricted to intellectual, academic, and fact-based knowledge. There's one thing he would not know. He would lack experiential knowledge. He would not know. Nor would he ever know what it is like to actually feel deep labor pains to struggle against the irresistible urge to push and to feel numbing exhaustion swept away in the joy of holding a life that came out of his very body. That's a taste of the difference between cognitive versus experiential knowledge. A second illustration comes from the the ongoing tension that currently exists in the field of alcohol and drug counseling. Those who approach addiction treatment from a background of book reading, classwork, and on-the-job training, in other words, cognitive knowledge, are looked at with discounting suspicion and distrust by those who approach addiction treatment out of their own personal struggles with alcohol and or drugs and their hard-won recovery which is experiential knowledge. One side claims you can't know depth from a book, while the other retorts you cannot know breadth based only on your own unique recovery. One may ask then, which type of knowledge is best? That's not a helpful question. They are two entirely different ways of knowing. Ideally, both are required in the travail of childbearing or for the difficult challenges of of alleviating suffering in fighting demon addictions. In our own lives, both kinds of knowledges are required. Whatever cognitive knowledge we had in our 
pre-existent state, and it sounds as if we had a lot, was blocked by the veil and must be regained, at least the part that's relevant for each person's highly individualized mortal journey. But much more important is the experiential knowledge that we did not possess in the pre-mortal state. It is in this mortal existence that we learn to master our appetites, such as control over temptations, bodily desires. We cannot learn this in the spirit world for the simple reason that we did not have physical bodies. Thus, Alma teaches that, quote, this life is the time for man to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for man to perform their labors, end quote. Alma 3432. By contrast, while some cognitive learning is idiosyncratically important in our mortal life, it is the next life that we may most easily acquire the majority of factual, informational type of knowledge. Knowledge that's hard to acquire now. Cognitive learning. Why is it hard to acquire now? Well, first it said, although not necessarily correct, that we only use 10% or so of our brains. Imagine if we could use 100%. Second, even if the first point is questionable, Hugh Nibley convincingly advances the idea that humans are limited to thinking only unilinearly, while God thinks multilinearly. He writes, Once we can see the possibilities that lie in being able to see more than one thing at a time, and in theory the experts tell us there's no reason why we should not, the universe takes on new dimensions, quite peculiar to the genius of Mormonism is the doctrine of a God who could preoccupy himself with countless numbers of things, end quote. Well, now consider Jesus Christ. If it was so necessary for us to gain experiential knowledge, what about our friends, Savior, and Elder Brother? Let me be clear, there's no question that Christ, a full member of the Godhead, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the creator of all things that were created, was already fully omniscient. To believe less is to deny the full divinity of God the Son. Quote, believe in God, end quote, Messiah tells us. Quote, believe that he has all wisdom, all power, both in heaven and on earth. Believe that man does not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend, end quote, Moses 4.9. Or as Nephi explained, exclaimed, quote, Oh, how great the holiness of our God, for he knoweth all things. There is not anything save he knows it, end quote, 2 Nephi 9.20. And as Alma exults, quote, My God has all wisdom and all knowledge. He comprehendeth all things, end quote, Alma 26.35. But is that cognitive comprehension or experiential comprehension? It seems to me that we're talking here about cognitive knowledge and not experiential or existential knowledge. As far as has been revealed, the Son of God had not yet navigated through any kind of mortal journey. We might say he had not yet experienced a mortal experience. Basing his conclusion on several scriptures, and including DNC 93, 11 to 14, one teacher expressed, quote, 
Of course, Jesus was a God and a member of the Godhead before he was born into mortality. But perhaps we can say that he had not yet fully developed all the attributes of Godhood. Apparently, Jesus' completion of the atonement gave him needed experience. Thus, our Savior gained perfect empathy. End quote. We know, in addition, that Jesus did not yet have a mortal body, for it was his spiritual body that was shown to the brother of Jared. In Christ's own words, quote, Behold this body, which ye now behold, is the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. End quote. Ether 3.16 But he also apparently needed the experiential knowledge that appears to come only in, through, and from a truly mortal experience in the flesh. Jesus Christ taught this same lesson when he compared the need for Joseph Smith to gain tangible and painful experience with his own tangible and painful condescension. Quote, Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? DNC 122.7-8 The implication is that our own mortal experience must, at least in some small degree, mirror Christ's own descent below all. In other words, his temptations and suffering, like his baptism, were undertaken at least in part to fulfill all righteousness and required a mortal experience according to the flesh. Alma 7, 11, 13. This point was powerfully made by Neil Maxwell when he observed, quote, Later in Gethsemane, the suffering Jesus began to be sore amazed, or in the Greek, awestruck, or astonished. Imagine, Jehovah, the creator of this and other worlds, astonished. Jesus knew cognitively what he must do, but not experientially. He had never personally known the exquisite and exacting process of an atonement before. Thus, when the agony came in its fullness, it was so much, much worse than even he, with his unique intellect, had ever imagined. End quote. New heading, How did Christ achieve full experiential knowledge? Referring to Christ's experiential learning as outlined in Alma 7, 11-13, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland wrote, quote, Christ walked the path every mortal is called to walk so that he would know how to succor and strengthen us in our most difficult times. He knows the deepest and most personal burdens we carry. He knows the most public and poignant pains we bear. He descended below all such grief in order that he might lift us above it. There is no anguish or sorrow or sadness in life that he has not suffered on our behalf and borne away in his own valiant and compassionate shoulders, end quote. Tad R. Callister expressed it this way, quote, No mortal can cry out, He does not understand my plight, for my trials are unique. There is nothing outside the scope of the Savior's experience the Savior knows, understands, and feels every human condition, every human woe, 
and every human loss. There is no hurt he cannot soothe, rejection he cannot assuage, loneliness he cannot console, end quote. The prophet and head of the church, Russell M. Nelson, has recently taught, quote, In the Garden of Gethsemane, our Savior took upon himself every pain, every sin, and all the anguish and suffering ever experienced by you and me and by everyone who has ever lived or will ever live, end quote. Similarly, the Apostle Paul stated that, quote, Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are, end quote. Hebrews 4.15. The question is, how inclusive is every? And how many is all points? Over the course of the history of this world, humans have faced millions, possibly billions, of unique temptations, afflictions, adversities, and idiosyncratic experiences on just our own earth. Did Christ vicariously experience all of them? That is, of course, unimaginable to mortal understanding. On the other hand, so is the core doctrinal principle that Christ suffered the penalty for every sin ever committed, or that will be committed, both in this world and in other worlds. Both of these concepts may be among the unknowables of the atonement, like Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night and was told he had to be born again, we may be left to marvel, as he did, quote, how can these things be? End quote. John 3, 7 to 9. The correct answer to the question, how is this accomplished, is that we simply do not know. In Nephi's great vision, he's asked, quote, knowest thou the condescension of God? End quote. In other words, do you understand why God the Son had to become mortal according to the flesh? We are left to admit, as did Nephi, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. First Nephi 11 to 17. On the other hand, the questions still bear consideration. As Russell M. Nelson has taught, the more we know, quote, the more we know about the Savior's ministry and mission, the more we understand his doctrine and what he did for us, end quote. It seems at least worth trying to attain some degree of understanding of what Tad Callister calls, quote, the intensity of his offering, end quote. If every, from President Nelson's earlier quote, literally means every, and if Paul's all points literally mean all, then we're left to marvel at some mechanism of divinity that we cannot understand. If so, that would be a miracle. And that would be fine, since what with man is impossible, but not with God, but with God all things are possible. Mark ten twenty seven and also Luke one thirty seven. However, if it is a miracle, we can still attempt to understand it. One aid to understanding any miracle is knowing that God does not violate natural law. Brigham Young taught, quote, Yet I will say, with regard to miracles, there's no such thing, uh, save to the ignorant. That is, there never was a result wrought out by God, or by, by any of his creatures, without there being a cause for it. There may be results, the cause of which we do not see or understand, 
And what we call miracles then are no more than this. They are the results or effects of causes hidden from our understanding. James Talmadge suggested the same idea when he wrote, quote, Miracles are commonly regarded as occurrences in opposition to the laws of nature. Such a conception is plainly erroneous, for the laws of nature are not inviolable. However, as human understanding of these laws is at best but imperfect, events strictly in accordance with natural laws may appear contrary thereto, end quote. What then could be the laws of nature in play? What could help us understand the apparent totality of the experiential knowledge that Christ obtained according to the flesh? Could the every and in all points actually be every and in all major categories of mortal experience? It's at least possible that categories of experience provided him with the comprehensive experiential knowledge through some kind of divine transfer of learning. In other words, the knowledge of a category of experiences could subsume all similar sub-experiences that fell within that category. As one simple and simplistic example, Jesus was never tempted to disobey modern laws of the land and to speed on the freeway or run a red light in the wee silent hours of the early morning, such conditions did not exist in the meridian of time. However, he may have been encouraged, at least by some of his followers, to disobey the laws of Rome. One of those laws compelled Jews to to carry a Roman soldier's pack, which included heavy armor, one mile. How did Jesus respond to the question about violating this law? According to the King James Version, he shocked everyone, as he often did, by teaching, go with him twain. That response addressed the category of not submitting to temptations to disobey law. Similarly, Matthew 5, 40, 41 has him teaching, quote, And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also, end quote thus teaching the category of returning love for legal challenges. As another example, Jesus was obviously never tempted to avoid U.S. federal taxes by exaggerating a withholding on an annual IRS tax return. However, he was tempted by the Jewish chief priests and scribes to avoid Roman taxes. When asked, quote, Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? He replied, Why tempt ye me? Then he taught the principle, the category, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's. Luke 20, 23-25. This possible explanation of there being categories of experience which transferred over to give Christ perfect experiential knowledge rather than him experiencing every specific human event has an analogy to the temptations of Jesus in the desert. We sometimes overlook that crucial part of his suffering, but to do so is a grave mistake. His three temptations in the desert 
were the first time that we know of where he faced major adversity. Satan would not have tempted him unless he had the possibility of succumbing. Elder Bruce R. McConkie pointed out just how bad those temptations were when he wrote, quote, Our Lord's temptations were real and a part of his necessary trials and tests. We know he was called upon to choose the right in the hardest and most difficult situations ever imposed upon mortals. His temptations were over and above those of any other person, end quote. This corresponds to Mosiah's teaching, quote, And lo, he shall suffer temptations, and pain of body, hunger, thirst, fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death, end quote, Mosiah 3, 7. Thus, his own physical cravings for food and water, after fasting in the desert 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew 4, 2-3, may have been every bit as intense and urgent as the cravings of any drug or sexual addict. Although he never snorted cocaine or injected heroin, he faced the category of carnal cravings when he denied his body food and water for those 40 days. We can't even imagine such a fast. If the 40 days were literal and not just symbolic, it would have killed any mortal man. Quote, no morsel of food entered his mouth. No drop of water wet his parched lips or dripped down his throat, writes Elder McConkie. His body cried out for food, end quote. Thus he had far more than just book learning about physical cravings. That's why he could truly be a wonderful counselor to those suffering from addictions as well as to everyone else. Surely his being a wonderful counselor is a major emphasis of the passage being discussed in this paper. Alma's words are, quote, that he may know how to succor, i.e., know how to counsel his people, and to be a wonderful counselor to them. Alma 7, 11 through 13, and Isaiah 9 to 6. Now, the idea of categories of temptations was, in fact, taught by David O. McKay over a hundred years ago. In a conference report, he taught that the three categories of temptation that Jesus overcame in the desert, he, he called them three forms, encompassed the majority of specific human temptations. Quote, now nearly every temptation that comes to you and me comes in one of those forms. Classify them and you will find that under one of those three, nearly every given temptation that makes you or me spotted by the evils of the world, ever so little maybe, comes to us as one, a temptation of the appetite, two, a yielding to the pride and fashion and vanity of those alienated from the things of God, or three, a gratifying of passion, or a desire for the riches of the world, or power among men. Now, when do temptations come? Why, they come to us in our social gatherings. They, they come to us at our weddings. They come to us in our politics. They come to us in our business relations, on the farm, in the mercantile establishment, in our dealings in all the affairs of life, end quote. <clears throat> of at least equal relevance is that the specific wording in Alma 7, 11, 
seems to bear out this idea of categories. Verse 11 does not say that Christ experienced every specific temptation. Rather, it says that he experienced, quote, temptations of every kind, end quote. Now, the word kind is important. It occurs in the Book of Mormon 40 times, almost exclusively within the phrase of every kind, end quote. Similarly, in the Old Testament, the word kind, generally translated from the Hebrew min, occurs 31 times, almost exclusively in the phrases, quote, after its kind, end quote, or, quote, according to its kind, end quote. Min occurs primarily in the creation story, the flood account, and in lists of clean and unclean animals. According to one authoritative website, quote, mean does refer to various kinds of living creatures without a predisposition as to how large a category is intended. Only context can tell us that. However, this contributes the general category of a form or kind. The Hebrew term mean carries a sense of all types of divisions between plants and animals, not necessarily in the taxonomies of modern scientific divisions, end quote. Although it can be problematic to apply modern meanings to scriptures written thousands of years ago, a reasonable understanding can often be gained by looking at the context for the usage of each word. Table 1 contains nine examples of the word kind in the Book of Mormon, or mean in the Old Testament in Pearly Great Price. All of them appear to suggest broad categories rather than every specific instance within a category. Example one, the scripture, 1 Nephi 8, verse 1, the context, Lehi and family take seeds of every kind, grain of every kind, and fruit of every kind. Now, could the travelers transport all possible varieties of seed, grain, and fruit? Or did they take samples from several categories? Example two, Mosiah 8 to 8, Ammon and his party stumbled across bones of Jaredites and ruins of buildings, quote, of every kind, end quote. Now, did Ammon find ruins of every possible building? or ruins of a large variety of types of buildings. Example three is Alma 7.11, which we're discussing. Uh, Christ prophesied to suffer the pains and afflictions and temptations, quote, of every kind, end quote. Well, that's the very question posed in this article. Did Jesus suffer all conceivable afflictions and temptations or categories of them? Next example, Alma 36.27, Alma tells his son that he was, quote, supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, and in all manner of afflictions. Now, whether Christ experienced every conceivable trial or not, Alma could not have. Hence, he talks about kinds and all manner of, meaning categories. Example 5, Alma 63, Moroni complains to Pahoran that his men suffered, quote, all manner of afflictions of every kind, end quote. 
Well, there's no doubt that Moroni's men suffered greatly, but they suffered categories, not every possible affliction. Example eight, the Lord blesses and prospers his people, quote, in gold and silver, all manner of precious things of every kind and art, end quote. Well, does this reference to all manner of precious things and art of every kind include all art pieces created or all manner of things and every kind of art? Next example, Genesis 1, Moses 2, Abraham 4, all say God commanded, prepared the earth to bring forth grasses, fruit trees, and animals after their own kind. The meaning here seems to be that the vegetation and animals reproduced in the same category, i.e. dogs gave birth to dogs, not to lion cubs or crocodiles. The next example is Genesis 6, 19 to 20. Noah is to take two of every sort of fowl, cattle, and creeping things after their kind, two of every sort. Well, could Noah have taken thousands of pairs of all varieties of fowl, cattle, and creeping things into the ark? Or do sorts and kinds imply categories? Leviticus 11, 14, 16 is our last example. Unclean fowls include eagles, ossifrash, osprey, quote, vulture, and the kite after his kind, end quote. Here the category is unclean fowls, and specific instances of that category are listed after his kind, suggesting within this category. Now, let's return to the analogy of the obstetrician. As a mortal man, Jesus Christ did not carry and give birth to a child any more than any man has or could. However, he experienced the same categories of the experience from which he could have obtained transferred experiential knowledge. His physical pain in Gethsemane and on the cross was more intense than any mother's labor pains have ever been or could ever be. His agony was so severe that it caused him to literally, quote, tremble because of pain and bleed at every pore, end quote, DNC 1918. He cognitively understood childbirth long before the birth of any mortal child. He experientially understood childbirth when he experienced that category and degree of pain according to the flesh. Given that Christ condescended to have a healthy mortal body and a full mortal experience, one proverbial elephant in the room is whether his experiences of mortal life included the categories of marriage, marital intimacy, and parenthood. Those three major aspects of life represent a huge array of of motivation, joy, longing, passion, hurt, and even abuse. They have been a major force in the lives of essentially every human being, man and woman, throughout the history of the world. So an obvious question is whether these three categories, marriage, intimacy, and parenthood, were also parts of Christ's mortal experience. Now note 
the church takes no official position on the marriage for Jesus, although people's speculations on this question have intensified with recent books and movies addressing this possibility. There is compelling evidence and logic in favor of marriage and parenthood, but there's also compelling evidence and logic opposing the idea that he married and bore offspring. A review of almost 200 years of statements and writings by prominent church leaders and others addressing these questions was published in 2021 in BYU Studies Quarterly. The author, Christopher James Blythe, writes that, quote, belief in a married Christ prospered in the early decades of the church with little controversy among members until leaders in the early 20th century discouraged its public discussion while never disparaging the concept, end quote. However, since the questions are sensitive and sacred and the church has taken no official position, we will not discuss these questions further, leaving readers to draw their own conclusions. However, we might close this thought by adding one relevant and important point offered by Terrell Gibbons. He noted, quote, the powers associated with procreation and the marital institution that Mormons see as instituted even before the fall together endow sexuality with an uncompromised status as holy, divine, and in some sense, eternal, end quote. Whether Jesus was married or not, suffice it to say that Christ's mortal life included in some way every category of experience, allowing him to obtain an intense experiential understanding of all human life, probably by some kind of transfer experience. For example, Jesus Christ never had his appendix surgically removed. He never went blind. He never experienced a broken bone. He never suffered the cognitive decline and the loss of dignity of old age. Nor did he ever lose a loved one to a drunk driver. So can he really understand our unique mortal experiences? Yes, he can. Either one, because of some divine ability of which we are unaware, or two, because he experienced every category of experience, according to the flesh. Exactly why that experiential learning was absolutely necessary and how it was accomplished is a matter of conjecture. That it was absolutely necessary is a matter of scripture. So far, the distinction between cognitive and experiential knowledge seems solid and important. The real test, though, is whether the text of the Book of Mormon, the actual, the actual wording in the chiasm of Alma 7, 11 to 13, supports this difference. And it seems so, because of one brief phrase that is easily glossed over or, or obscured by the overall message of the chiasm. It occurs in step C, where we are told, quote, now the spirit knoweth all things, end quote. What spirit? Couldn't be the Holy Ghost in this context. Alma's talking about the birth and mission of Jehovah as Jesus, one member of the Godhead. There's no logical reason to mention so suddenly, so briefly, an attribute of a second member of the Godhood. 
In, in any case, even if the phrase did refer to the Holy Ghost, which seems unlikely, well, that changes little. The unembodied Holy Ghost did not have experiential knowledge either. He did not have an experience in the flesh because he had not yet taken on flesh. If the phrase, the Spirit knoweth all things, is a general statement about all pre-mortal spirits, well, the phrase is obviously not true and not correct. While we don't know much about pre-mortal spirits, it is a tenet of our faith that pre-mortal spirits have not yet had a mortal experience, hence pre-mortal. They have not yet had an opportunity to learn experientially. They will learn experientially through learning agency in this mortal world and also learn cognitively, which cognitive learning continues into the next life. But our pre-mortal spirit certainly did not know all things. If the phrase, the spirit knoweth all things, refers to the as yet unembodied spirit of Jesus Christ, well, that would be partially correct. It would be a true and correct statement of, at the least, his omniscience in cognition, understanding, and knowledge. Jehovah did know all things cognitively while he was in his pre-mortal spirit form. Step C continues with a caveat, quote, nevertheless, end quote. Nevertheless what? Quote, nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, end quote. This is the third time that the phrase according to the flesh is stated. It is an obvious reference to Christ's mortality. This suggests, among other lessons, that there is something that occurs in a mortal and physical experience that modifies or adds in some way to the attribute that his spirit already knows all things. It seems likely that this refers to his adding experiential knowledge to his already perfect and complete cognitive knowledge. This idea is further supported by the twinned apex in the F steps. There we find the dual reference to his mortal experience, quote, according to the flesh, according to the flesh, end quote. However, step F2 adds the additional phrase that he may know. Again, this suggests that some type of knowing was connected to his condescending to become mortal and have a mortal experience. That would seem to indicate experiential knowledge that he may know according to the flesh. This helps explain exactly why the all-important apex of the chiasm is the double phrase according to the flesh, the F-steps, and not the more intuitively expected mercy and suckering. That latter emphasis, which is the one that captures the most attention, falls one step lower in the E steps. In sum, it may be that even though the Spirit knoweth all things cognitively, Alma 7.13, the temptations and the atonement had to be physical, they had to be literal, they had to be experiential according to the flesh. As McConkie put it, it was part of the eternal plan. New heading, four aspects of the atonement. Both the fact of Christ taking on mortal flesh, the F-steps, and his ability to provide succor, the E-steps, go together. 
Similarly, they are connected to his sharing of infirmities, the D steps, his dying for us, C1, his empathy, the B steps, and his redemption, A2, and form one great whole. As Robert Millet put it, the atonement is the central act of human history, the pivotal point in all time, the doctrine of doctrines, end quote. However, there may be value in separating out the four main elements or aspects of the atonement. All of these four aspects are addressed to a, a lesser or a greater degree in the chiasm of Alma 7, 11 through 13. These four aspects include the resurrection, his pain, suffering, and death, including his temptations, his healing and succoring of us, and a part of Christ's own progression. I'll talk about each of these in turn. The first aspect of the atonement that Christ came back to life is of supreme importance. It was Christ's resurrection that broke the bands of death for all mankind. Our mortal bodies, now subject to illness and death, will rise again and be made incorruptible. Although this aspect is likely the most important of the four, it's not the major focus of these particular verses. Alma 7, 11 to 13. We must look elsewhere to other scripture for an emphasis on the resurrection aspect itself. The same is true for the second aspect, that Christ suffered to expiate our sins is similarly not the major focus of these verses. This is not to minimize his suffering. In fact, we might note that the suffering of Christ occurred not only in Gethsemane and on the cross, but throughout his life. In their appropriate zeal to venerate the pain and suffering of the atonement, some authors gloss over the fact that Christ's sacrifice occurred in at least three other settings as well. One, during his beyond human temptations in the desert. Two, throughout his adult life and his ministry. Quote, Lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be under death. End quote. Mosiah 3.7 And then three, at the horror of his scourging, flogging, and the indignity of the crown of thorns. Quote, With his stripes we are healed. End quote. Isaiah 53.5 in no way is the mention of these three other settings meant to minimize the events of the atonement itself. To the contrary, I wish to expand our appreciation of the full scope of his condescension. And in fact, the death of Jesus Christ is something that we are encouraged to reflect on when we symbolically pull back the burial shroud, break the emblems of his body into small pieces, and then symbolically partake of that body and his blood during the weekly sacrament ordinance. Thus, although we do not focus on the symbol of the cross per se, we do focus on his physical death, both in the sacrament and in the temple. Although a full description and analysis of the physical death of Jesus Christ goes far beyond the scope of this short article, 
several excellent articles have been written on the medical aspects of his death. His death on the cross has also been masterfully covered in, in numerous general conference addresses. Quote, many th- more, more than 330 church leaders have spoken of the Savior's death more than 3,000 times, end quote. And that's from John Hilton III. Plus, this essential event has been completely treated in many full-length books. Nevertheless, the focus of these verses is not on his unimaginable sacrifice to expiate our sins. Rather, the focus is on a third aspect of Christ's condescension, his desire to understand, heal, and succor us in our pains, losses, and infirmities. Scriptural support for Jesus Christ's urgent desire to understand the mortal experience is rare, even in Restoration Scripture, but especially in Biblical Scripture. Relying only on the Bible, one might well focus only on forgiveness of sin and on the resurrection. However, Alma 7 gives us so much more. Elder Holland points out this same distinction when he writes that Christ's grace is more expansive than to focus only on the expiation of sin. Quote, Most Christians believe that, based upon repentance, the atonement of Christ will redeem humankind from the final consequences of sin and death, which is aspect two. But only those who receive the restored gospel, including the Book of Mormon, know how thoroughly the atonement heals and helps with so many more categories of disappointment and heartache here and now, in time as well as in eternity. End quote. Elder Holland teaches that this expansiveness comes particularly through the Book of Mormon. Quote, Virtually all Christian churches teach some kind of doctrine regarding the atonement of Christ, and the expiation of our sins that comes through it. That's aspect two. But the Book of Mormon teaches that and much more. It teaches that Christ also provides relief of a more temporal sort, taking upon himself our mortal sicknesses and infirmities, our earthly trials and tribulations, our personal heartaches and loneliness and sorrows. And that's aspect three. All done in addition to taking upon himself the burden of our sins. Elder Boyd K. Packen made a similar point when he stressed, for some reason, we think the atonement of Christ applies only at the end of mortal life to redemption from the fall, from spiritual death. And those are aspects one and two. It's much more than that. It's an ever-present power to call upon in everyday life when we are racked or harrowed up or tormented by guilt or burdened with grief, he can heal us, which is aspect three, end quote. Alma 7, 11-13, thus occupies a, a uniquely emphasized place as one of the doctrinal pillars of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As John Welch has pointed out, Alma mentions pain and affliction and temptations of every kind. That is a stronger statement of the expansive reach of the atonement 
than we can find anywhere else in scripture. Alma is the only one in scripture who emphasizes this aspect of Christ's sustaining power, end quote. In the words of Robert Millet, quote, Indeed, Jesus Christ is the source of solace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, end quote. But there's still more. A fourth aspect of the atonement suggests that there may have been certain benefits for Jesus Christ in his condescending from a state of divinity to accept a, a difficult lifetime of mortality according to the flesh. I approach a discussion of this fourth aspect with caution, suggesting that there were also benefits for a divine being may seem counterintuitive, even disrespectful. For thousands of years prior to Bethlehem, humans worshipped Christ as the pre-mortal Jehovah. He was the creator under the direction of the Father of worlds without number, Moses 1.33. Quote, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made which was made, end quote. John 1, 3, Christ condescended to come to earth primarily as an incredible act of incomprehensible and unconditional love. It was performed for our benefit. We have not paid him, nor can we pay him. We do not deserve, nor can we deserve, this priceless gift. See Mosiah 2, 20, 21. That is what is meant when it said that the atonement was a selfless act. President Boyd K. Packer used the term selfless and sacred sacrifice in the title of a BYU devotional in 2015. Similarly, President Gordon B. Hinckley referred to the atonement as a totally selfless act, and Elder Richard G. Scott called it the same thing in a conference address in 26. Comparing Christ's actions to a a solo rock climber, Elder Scott taught that, quote, the atonement was a selfless act of infinite eternal consequences, arduously earned alone, end quote. The atonement was truly selfless in the fact that Christ did not do it for reward, praise, or adoration. He did it so that we could, quote, buy milk and honey without money, without price, end quote, 2 Nephi 26.25. There is nothing we can do to earn our expiation. If there were, Christ's atonement would be a wage, not a free gift. Quote, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. End quote. That from Ephesians 2, 8-9. The atonement is something that Christ provides, quote, without money, without price. End quote. And that's Isaiah 55, 1-2. 2 Nephi 9-50. However, selfless does not mean that his condescension did not also advance his own work and his glory. He, he didn't do it for gain, but he still gained. He benefited in at least three ways. First, taking upon himself flesh meant that he obtained a mortal physical body, something that was essential to him as it is for all of us. Second, it allowed him to become perfect in the sense of complete. He did not initially have complete experiential knowledge to pair with his complete and perfect cognitive knowledge. Taking on the flesh allowed him to become complete and perfect 
in the experiential sense too. Third, he was already perfect in the sense of total righteousness and without blemish, but he had not yet completed his assigned mission. The full events of the atonement were not yet complete. He had covenanted to certain actions that had not yet happened. The plan of salvation could not have been set in motion without that covenant. Without the covenant, we would have remained spirits. And without the keeping of the covenant, we would have been eternally lost, bereft of our physical bodies and the presence of God. The atonement had not yet taken place. Russell M. Nelson, then an apostle, made that clear when he taught about the perfection of Jesus Christ. Quote, in Matthew 5.48, the term perfect was often translated from the Greek tilios, which means complete. Just prior to his crucifixion, he said on the third day, I shall be perfected. Uh, Luke 13.32, think of that. The sinless, errorless Lord, already perfect by our mortal standards, proclaimed his own state of perfection yet to be in the future. His concluding words upon Calvary's cross referred to the culmination of his atonement, to atone for all humankind. Then he said, it is finished. John 19.30, DNC 19.19. Not surprisingly, the Greek word from which finished was derived is tilios that Jesus attained eternal perfection following his resurrection is confirmed in the Book of Mormon. He said, quote, I would that ye should be perfect even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. 3 Nephi 12:48. This time he listed himself along with his Father as a perfected personage. Previously, he had not. Paul taught that Quote, they are ancestors without us should not be made perfect. End quote. Again, in that verse, the Greek term from which perfect was translated was a form of tilios. End quote. All of that from uh, Russell Nelson. To summarize, Christ was already perfect or complete in his absolute righteousness and his cognitive omniscience. He was not yet perfect or complete, in three other ways. One, he needed to become perfect, complete by gaining his flesh, i.e. a physical mortal body, that was soon to become a perfected immortal body. Two, he needed to become perfect or complete by adding experiential knowledge to his omniscient cognitive knowledge through his 33 years of mortal experiences, his temptation in the desert, and through the agonizing hours from Gethsemane to Golgotha. And three, he needed to become perfect, complete, by using that flesh to expiate the sins of mankind by dying, to overcome universal death. In other words, by completing the atonement, something that nobody else could do. Quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. This theme of Christ's perfection completion is more than conjecture. It is scripture. In Paul's powerful words, quote, 
though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. End quote, Hebrews 5, 8. That Christ also benefited personally from taking on human flesh and acquiring experiential knowledge was taught in unmistakable words by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. He wrote that Christ taking on flesh, quote, gave him the experiences he needed to work out his own salvation, end quote. Expanding on that in another of his books, McConkie proclaimed, quote, if the plan of salvation ordained by the Father was to enable all of his spirit children to advance and progress and become like him, then Jehovah also was subject to its terms and conditions. Our Lord's mortality was essential to his own salvation. The eternal exaltation of Christ himself, though he was a God, had power and intelligence like unto the Father, was dependent upon gaining a mortal body, overcoming the world by obedience, passing through the portals of death, and then coming forth in glorious immortality with a perfected celestial body. Christ came into the world to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling before the Father. There neither was, nor is, nor shall be any other way for anyone to house a spiritual body, even that of a God, in an eternal tabernacle like that of the Father, requires a mortal birth and a mortal death. Christ wrought his atonement first for himself and his own salvation, then for the salvation of those who believe on his name, and finally, and in a lesser degree, for all the sons of Adam. End quote. Could Christ have accomplished any of these four aspects of the atonement in the absence of the others? For example, could he have suffered for our sins without ultimately dying on the cross and then being resurrected, which is aspect one. Conceivably, perhaps. But what would have been the point if he suffered for our sins but didn't die, which death made it possible for us to also rise again and be with him? Could he have gained experiential knowledge without using that knowledge to heal, comfort, and succor anyone? Well, again, Conceivably, yes, but to what end? That would have been merely adding experiential knowledge for knowledge's sake. Such a thought denies the scope and universality of his unconditional and perfect love. No, no, the atonement is very much a package deal, to borrow a phrase from Robert Millet. The four aspects work together into one synchronized whole that is more than the sum of its parts. Alma's testimony is that the entirety of the atonement was accomplished by and through the flesh. It was the flesh that faced temptations of every kind in the desert, adversity throughout his life, an agony in the final events of Gethsemane through Calvary, which is the A-steps. He could take upon him the pains and sickness and the sins of his people, the B-steps, because of the flesh. 
Through his flesh, he died for us, the sea steps. Because of his flesh, he was able to take upon him our infirmities, the D-steps. That laid the foundation for him to be filled with mercy so that he would know how, through experiential knowledge via the flesh, to succor his people, the E-steps. The twin apex of a how is according to the flesh, the F-steps. So far in this essay, We've talked about how Jesus Christ gained a complete knowledge of all human experience. We have discussed this in an either-or manner. Did he experience every individual trial, temptation, adversity, affliction, sin? Or did he experience categories that subsumed more specific instances? There is a third possibility. He could have done both. He might have lived 33 years of mortal life that allowed him to gain experiential knowledge by category, through experiencing the stages of infancy, childhood, and adulthood, his three temptations of the desert, the constant rejection by the Pharisees, and so on, then he could have vicariously taken upon himself every conceivable and individual sin through some unknowable divine process in the approximately 24 hours that included his time in Gethsemane and on the cross. In 2005, Elder Merrill G. Bateman of the Seventy emphasized the individuality of his paying for sin when he stated, quote, For many years I thought of the Savior's experience in the garden and on the cross as places where a large mass of sin was heaped upon him. Through the words of Alma, Abinadi, Isaiah, and other prophets, however, my view has changed. Instead of an impersonal mass of sin, there was a long line of people as Jesus felt our infirmities, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, and was bruised for our iniquity. Isaiah 53:45. The atonement was an intimate, personal experience in which Jesus came to know how to help each of us, end quote. The idea that Jesus could have lived a mortal life with its attendant types or categories of experiences, but then vicariously face many billions of highly individualized sins in the 24 hours of the atonement is truly difficult to comprehend. Various authors and teachers have speculated on, on how a divine process might have allowed for this uh, long line of people. These speculations have included such devices as the suspension of time, the recycling of time, uh, Nibley's multilineal thinking, or even parallel universes. But the fact is, we simply do not know. Now, at first glance, some statements seem to suggest that Christ's experiential learning, in order to succor us, all took place during the brief hours of the atonement. Elder Bateman's statement that I just read could be read that way. Similarly, John Hilton III writes that, quote, we see from the prophet Enoch that when we experience deep pain, we can find comfort at Calvary. He adds that Christ's crucifixion was the answer to Enoch's heartache. It can be the answer to our heartaches as well no matter what type of suffering we experience, be it mental, spiritual, emotional, 
or physical, end quote. In a related study, he writes, quote, through the events of Gethsemane, Calvary, and his resurrection, Jesus Christ suffered our pains and sins, end quote. Similarly, Sister Jean B. Bingham, speaking in General Conference, asserted, quote, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary, he felt all of our pains, afflictions, temptations, sicknesses, and infirmities, end quote, which sounds a lot like Alma 7. Now, I'm not suggesting <clears throat> that any of these statements are incorrect. However, it would be easy to misinterpret such statements as claiming that the experiential knowledge talked about in Alma 7 was gained during and only during the brief hours of the actual atonement. That would be a mistake. It does not seem to be what these writers and speakers are saying. Rather, they seem to be asserting that uh, in taking upon himself human sins to atone for them, Jesus greatly increased his experiential knowledge of human suffering and pain as a byproduct of atoning for their sins. It seems to me that the hours from Gethsemane through the cross were fully involved with atoning primarily for human sin. It was at these two times that Christ vicariously paid for all and every individual sin as well as the collective sins of all mankind. The enormity of, of that part of the sacrifice is, is staggering just by itself. Paying the price of all individual sins for all mortals clearly would have required some divine mechanism to accomplish. It's simply not necessary to add that the totality of Christ's experiential learning also took place only in this compressed time period. That misinterpretation defies common sense. It also discounts the significance of the rest of Christ's life. It does not contradict anything any prophet has ever said or written about the magnitude of Christ's free gift in the garden and on the cross to say that a large portion of his coming to know according to the flesh took place earlier, prior to the events of the actual atonement. In other words, during the entirety of his life. Bishop Richard C. Edgeley put it this way, quote, His condescension was manifest by who he was and the way he lived. His condescension can be seen in almost every recorded act of his 33 years of mortality. The Savior lived his teachings. He showed us the way. The God of this earth, the Redeemer of the world, condescended to minister to the humble, despised, despairing, hopeless, and helpless. His condescension was evidenced in his everyday living, end quote. In addition, note that Christ's atoning for human sin, one part of the mortal experience, and his experiential learning of human pain and infirmities, a second part of the mortal experience, are at least, to some degree, separate and distinct situations. These two situations were obviously related in that sin can cause pain and infirmity and can also be caused by pain and infirmity. Yet, they are also distinct states or conditions. This idea of a, of a distinction between the two is even hinted at 
by the order in which they're presented in Alma 7. Verses 11 and 12 primarily focus on him, on, on his succoring us in our pains and infirmities with a brief mention of his conquering death by way of the resurrection. But the taking upon him of all human sin and blotting out human transgression are not mentioned until verse 13. This fact also seems implied by Alma's exact wording. Alma states that he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations. That from verse 11. There is no going forth during and after Gethsemane. He was met at the edge of the garden by armed soldiers, Jewish and Roman, who arrested him, tried him, flogged him, and nailed him to a cross. Now, exactly when he went forth can we be debated, but we know that his temptations, which, as I asserted earlier, are not always emphasized, took place at the beginning of his formal ministry, some three years before the few event-filled hours of the atonement. Similarly, the opening of Isaiah's well-known prophecy of Christ's mission seemed to refer to his life prior to Gethsemane and the cross. The great prophet wrote, quote, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 2-3 Well, the prophecy then goes on to clearly reference the atonement, but it appears certain that Christ's development of empathic understanding also took place incrementally during his entire life, not just from the garden to the tomb. As the angel taught Nephi, the Son of God did not condescend to become an earthly king or or even a fully grown adult man. He condescended to become a helpless baby. That seems significant. Nephi added, And I beheld that he went forth ministering unto the people in power and great glory, and multitudes were gathered together to hear him, and I beheld they cast him out from among them. End quote. First Nephi 11.28 Writer Gerald Lund adds, quote, As he went out among the people, he made no attempt to screen out the unwashed, the unworthy. His whole life was spent dealing and working with those who, who were what others would define as the, the dregs of society, lepers, the sick, the diseased, the, the halt, the maimed, prostitutes, publicans, sinners. He mixed freely among them, although when one considers who he was and where he came from, that alone was a remarkable condescension, end quote. And all of that, all of that was pre-Gethsemane. In fact, that seems to be the whole idea behind the doctrine that Jehovah condescended to experience a full mortal life according to the flesh with its attendant mortal categories and experiences. Those experiences, almost all of which occurred prior to the 24 hours of the atonement, 
also play a major role in what various church leaders and writers have described as an intimate and total understanding of individualized experience. What is important to remember is that the magnificence and centrality of the events of the atonement are not the only aspect of Christ's life that we must worship. His 33 years of mortal life, including the extremely important temptations in the desert and his three-year ministry, all prior to Gethsemane, were a central part of his experiential learning. They were not irrelevant. The takeaway is that exactly when Jesus Christ emphatically learned to succor us in our pains and afflictions is less important than the fact that he did so. And that fact is dominant in the chiasm of Alma 7, 11 through 13. The possible surprise with which we started this section of the paper is the question of why the apex of the chiasm is not the intuitively expected message of his mercy in succoring us. We have hopefully addressed this first surprise by demonstrating that the apex of the according to the flesh detail is fully justified, completely fitting. The flesh was not just essential to one of the four aspects of the, of the atonement. It was essential to all four. All of this, all four aspects of the atonement were accomplished in one way and one way only through Christ's voluntary condescension of taking on mortality according to the flesh. That's why the, the twinned apex of the chiasm points to that condescension into flesh as the essential point or climax. It turns out that there's nothing surprising at all about what lies at the twin apex of the chiasm. It is fitting, complete, and perfect that the twinned apex emphasizes that his ability to succor, lift, and heal was accomplished only through and according to the flesh. New heading, the covenantal relationship in Alma 7, 14-15. A second uh, surprise at viewing Alma 7, 11-13 in chiastic form may be how abruptly it appears to end at least on an initial reading. After verse 13, the topic of Alma's sermon seems to switch dramatically and inexplicably. Alma first talked about the birth, the atoning mission of Christ, how his taking on flesh provided the ability to provide succor. Then all of a sudden, Alma bore a nine-word testimony and started talking about what appeared to be a an entirely new topic. Suddenly we're hearing about repentance and baptism. Why? Compounding the sense that we're on to other things is that of the many talks, lessons, books, and discussions of verses 11 to 13, almost none include any mention of the next two verses. The first set of verses, 11 to 13, is presented as powerful and and doctrinally saturated, which it is, but also as a gem that is isolated and self-contained, which it is not. Although everything seems to stop at the end of verse 13, that does not appear to be Alma's intent. 
Rather, there appears to be a relationship with verses 14 and 15 that need to be examined. Before discussing that relationship, let me point out that the next two verses, Alma 7, 14 to 15, present a powerful gem in their own right. Very notably, these two verses also form a second chiasm. The second chiasm is of a, a similar size, has a similar twin apex structure, and enjoys a similar confidence or chiasticity as the first chiasm. There's little question about the authenticity of the second chiasm as a parallelistic unit. Again, this chiasm is not mine alone. It was also recognized and identified as a chiasm by two different scholars in two different studies by Alan C. Minor and Donald W. Perry. A, verse 14. Now I say unto you, that ye must repent and be born again. For the Spirit saith, if you are not born again, ye cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. B. Therefore, come and be baptized unto repentance, that ye may be washed from your sins. D. That ye may have faith on the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. D. Two, who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. See to, yea, I say unto you, come and fear not, and lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you, which doth bind you down to destruction. Be to, yea, come and go forth, and show unto your God that ye are willing to repent of your sins, a to, and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments, and witness it unto him this day, by going into the waters of baptism. In brief, step A, A1, presents repentance and being born again, i.e. baptism, as the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That is paired with step A2, which describes entering a covenant of keeping commandments through the witnessing ordinance of baptism or being born again. Moving up to step B1, we read a second emphasis on coming and being baptized under repentance that is paired with B2, which also lists coming forth as a demonstration of our willingness to repent. Moving up to step C1, we read of being washed from sin. Then in C2, we are called upon to lay aside every sin. The apex, which is made up of the twin D steps, pair the mission of the Lamb to take away every sin with the ability of Christ to save and cleanse from sin. In sum, chiasm number two is glorious and instructive in its own right. It is a call to action. It brings to mind the choice that President Russell M. Nelson has clarified, quote, we can choose to be of Israel or not. We can choose to let God prevail in our lives or not. We can choose to let God be the most powerful influence in our lives or not, end quote. But what are we to take or make from the position of chiasm two, which directly and immediately follows chiasm number one with no break or commentary by Alma? 
These are not a chapter apart or even a dozen verses apart. They stand together. Just what is the relationship, if any, between these two chiasms? That there must be some relationship between the two is almost required by their proximity. Again, almost none of the plethora of statements and commentaries related to chiasm one make any reference to chiasm two, which follows immediately. One of the two exceptions that I've found comes from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who, based on the chapter and verse format, briefly alludes to a relationship. He merely notes that, quote, this doctrine, Alma 7, 11-13, led Alma to invite his audience to lay claim to these blessings by being baptized under repentance, end quote. John Welch offers a similar comment, quote, Alma encourages these people to come and be baptized, end quote. These are certainly true and correct observations, but they are limited and brief, and most commentators do not even mention a relationship if they notice one. It is my position that as most scripture is layered, so there may be an even deeper layer here. A more profound relationship between Alma 7, 11 to 13 and the following two verses seems to be powerfully revealed when verses 14 to 15 are formatted with their parallelistic structure and considered as being in a relationship with verses 11 to 13. Then it becomes clear that these two chiasms stand as twin sentinels or gateways to eternal life. Chiasm number one most heavily emphasizes the third aspect of Christ's great atonement, his healing and succoring through his experiential knowledge gained in the flesh. In other words, chiasm number one could be seen as as one side of a holy and binding covenant. This chiasm appears to be what Christ offers to us. Quote, His spirit heals, it refines, it comforts, it breathes new life into hopeless hearts, it transforms all that's ugly and vicious, worthless in life, to something of supreme and glorious splendor, to convert the ashes of mortality to the beauties of eternity, end quote. That is what Christ offers to us, the succoring healing of understanding and comfort. Chiasm number two, on the other hand, could be seen as representing the other side of a two-part contract. Those two verses describe what we then offer to Christ, a broken and willing heart as demonstrated through the covenant of baptism. That word willing is easy to gloss over, but its importance cannot be overstressed. Willingness to believe and willingness to act on that belief is, in fact, the only thing we can offer to Christ. In the words of Elder Neil A. Maxwell, quote, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. And when we submit to his will, then we've really given him the one thing he asks of us, end quote. As an important aside, Matthew Bowen, a scholar researching onomastic names in the Book of Mormon, has demonstrated that this concept of willingness has much greater significance than is normally recognized. 
In the latter part of the Book of Mormon, Helaman's sons, Nephi and Lehi, devoted themselves to preaching and were quickly cast into prison with 300 others who were Lamanites or Nephite dissenters. Well, they were soon encircled about as if by fire and were overshadowed with a cloud of darkness from Helaman 5.28. Seeing this and hearing a voice, several prisoners cried out, What do all these things mean? One of the Nephite dissenters replied that they must repent and cry unto the voice, even until ye shall have faith in Christ. End quote, Helaman 5.41. He and the others immediately did so and soon felt the unspeakable joy of the Holy Spirit. The 300 were then called to go forth among their people and share all the things which they had heard and seen. Before long, quote, the more part of the Lamanites were convinced, end quote. A brief Edenic state was created, and the Lord began to pour out his spirit. We are told that this took place, quote, because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words, end quote. Helaman 6.36. Bowen points out that the otherwise minor character, the Helaman dissenter who facilitated this change of heart, had his name specifically identified by Mormon. Why? Well, the man's name was Abinadab. This was a Semitic Hebrew origin name made up of Ami, or my people, plus Nadab, or willing. Bowen concludes that Mormon's word choice in 636, the willingness of the people, and his using Aminadab's name, meaning my people are willing, was a deliberate, quote, association to underscore the covenantal relationship in the account. Returning to Alma's sermon, it's highly significant that Alma used all three terms, willing, covenant, and baptism, in a single verse, Alma 7.15. Note that although the actual word willing is used only one time in Chiasm 2, the concept of willingness is implicit in every level of the Chiasm. This is reminiscent of Mosiah's profound words that we must, like a child, be, quote, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him even as a child does submit to his father, end quote, Mosiah 3.19. In effect, Alma is telling us that we must, one, be willing to repent and be born again, the, the A steps of Chiasm 2, two, willing to come and be baptized, the B steps, three, willing to be washed from your past sins and lay aside future sins, the C steps, and four, willing to have faith in the Lamb of God, the D-steps. That, then, is the covenantal relationship. He will run to succor us with mercy, Chiasm 1. We must run to him with repentant and willing hearts, Chiasm 2. The status of these two chiasms as independent units, but ones that are intimately related to each other, is further illustrated by the word choices that Alma uses. Notice that Chiasm 1 begins by using the third-person pronoun. Alma teaches that he will take upon him, his people, 
their infirmities, and so on. This continues down to and including verse 13, take upon him, blot out their infirmities, his deliverance, etc. And that also indicates that verse 13 is truly a part of the three-verse unit of Alma 7, 11 to 13. But then in verse 14, the text switches to the second person pronoun. Alma now preaches, say unto you, ye must repent, ye must be watched, and the like. Again, this seems to indicate two separate and distinct but closely related units. Chiasm 1 is what he does. Chiasm 2 is what you, actually we, do in return. Now, additional evidence should not be needed, but there's one more piece that can be presented. That this two-way commitment is in fact a covenantal relationship is proven by the very words of Alma himself. In Alma 7.15, he calls it exactly that, asking us to, quote, enter into a covenant with him, end quote. And that's step A2. What better proof can there be than that? Why would Alma use the word covenant unless the two sides of the two-way agreement constituted a covenantal relationship and the terms of that covenant were articulated somewhere? And they are. They are just harder to see in chapter and verse format than they are in parallelistic format because they're interrupted, if I may use that word, by Alma's brief nine-word testimony that is tagged on to the end of verse 13. Quote, And behold, this is the testimony which is in me. End quote. It certainly sounds like this is a conclusion, so we tend to stop reading, or at least we think, well, that particular message is finished. But no, it is at the end of verse 15 that the message concludes, not at the end of verse 13. Then in verse 16, Alma has an opportunity to provide a commentary on this covenantal relationship. He begins by saying, and whosoever doeth this, doeth what? Be baptized? Well, of course, but surely that's only part of it. It's only the second of the four willingnesses requested of us. Is he not really saying, and whosoever doeth this, meaning entereth into this covenant? The covenant includes Christ's side, consisting of his majestic gift, so beautifully described in Chiasm 1. The four willingnesses, especially baptism, are our side of the two-way covenant. But this is not all. Alma then issues a parallel statement addressed to the same, meaning the ones who entered into this covenant. The same will remember that I say unto him, that's present tense, yea, he will, he will remember that I have said unto him, that's the past tense. But uh, say what? Said what? That Christ will add nothing less than, quote, eternal life, Alma 7.16. The repeat of that phrase, will remember, followed by the present tense say and the past tense said, seem to be saying that this offer is not new. It is a renewal of a truth that has always existed. If we enter into this covenant and keep 
the commandments of God from thenceforth, Alma 7.16, we will be granted eternal life. Interestingly, there is no future tense mentioned, I will say. Perhaps this suggests that a time will come when that covenant relationship will no longer be available. That could be because an individual has had his or her opportunity and wasted it, or an individual is past feeling, or the covenant is no longer available because of some future event, such as the final judgment. But the word remember, significantly repeated twice, also brings to mind the sacrament ordinances. In the prayers for both the bread and the water, participants renew their covenant in remembrance of the the body or the blood of the Son and promise that they will always remember him, repeated twice in each blessing. As an important addition, the covenantal wording of the blessing over the bread also shares with 7 verse 15 the comforting concept of being willing to take upon you the name of Christ. Willingness is enough. There's no expectation of needing to have already fully taken on the name of Christ or being fully repentant. The essence is that we are willing. This similarity in wording of remember and willing is further evidence that we are looking at a covenantal relationship in the association of these two chiasms. Next heading, the conference aftermath in Alma 7, 17 through 27. <clears throat> After Alma 7, 16, Alma's sermon is over. Although there are 10 verses remaining in the chapter, the main message has been delivered. That's not to say that the last 10 verses are not important, because they are, but the core doctrine has been revealed. The invitation to the covenant has been issued, and it's time for closing comments. In saying this, note that Alma 7 is all we have of what was actually a longer sermon. We are explicitly told that Alma, quote, taught the people of Gideon many things which cannot be written, quote, and that he, quote, established the order of the church, end quote, Alma 8.1. How interesting and enlightening it would be to have more of what Alma shared with the people. That Alma is now beginning the summation of his sermon is indicated by the first words of Alma, verse 17. And now, my beloved brethren, that sounds like a wrap-up, and Alma indeed closes down the meeting by saying that he knows, through inspiration, quote, the manifestation of the Spirit, end quote, verse 17, that his audience in Gideon believes in the covenant he has just described. He adds that he expected as much, verse 18, and knows that the people of Gideon are in the paths of righteousness, verse 19. However, Alma drops in another point of doctrinal significance when he bears his testimony that once a covenant has been delivered and accepted, God cannot break his side. Quote, He cannot walk in crooked paths, neither does he vary from that which he hath said, neither hath he a shadow of turning from the right to the left, or from that which is right to that which is wrong, end quote, Alma 7, verse 20. On the face of it, Alma's testimony about this truth is straightforward. It's interesting to note, however, that the word right has an additional symbolic meaning. The right hand is generally considered to be symbolically the covenant hand. 
Russell M. Nelson has noted that the right hand suggests symbolic favor. The right hand is the hand used in ordinances like baptism, sacraments, sustainings, oaths, and various temple rites. The importance of the right hand was scripturally demonstrated by the master when he said, quote, he shall set his sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. End quote Matthew 25. 33 to 34 and 41. At a symbolic level then, Alma is saying that God doesn't have the slightest hint or shadow of abandoning the covenant he has just offered, the right, by going to the left. Neither will he abandon the covenant, the right, and turn to that which is wrong, which is verse 20. About covenants, Christ revealed to Joseph Smith that all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. DNC 8440. We can count on Christ the King to honor 100% of his side of the covenant. The only question is our side. We can be assured that if anyone is going to break the covenant, It will be on the human and mortal side. That's always the case, as is proven again and again throughout the pages of Scripture. Quote, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, 14, DNC 121, 34. Alma then continued, quote, and he doth not dwell in unholy temples, neither can filthiness or anything which is unclean be received into the kingdom of God, end quote. Verse 21, God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. If we abandon our side of the covenant and by doing so become filthy or unclean, God is no longer bound and we no longer qualify for the blessing of that covenant. At that point, quote, he who is filthy shall remain in his filthiness. End quote, verse 21. For that reason, Alma warns, we must not enter into the covenant lightly. He wants, quote, to awaken you to a sense of your duty to God, to walk blameless before him after the holy order of God. End quote, verse 22. The acceptance of our side of the covenantal relationship thus creates a sacred and serious obligation. By assuming that covenantal responsibility, we are expected to take on various virtues, which are listed in verses 23 through 24. At this point, Alma ends with what well may be viewed as the equivalent of a pre-Christ and therefore pre-apostle apostolic blessing. He begins by blessing them that the Lord will, quote, Keep their garments spotless, end quote, verse 25. Notice that it is the Lord who makes and keeps our garments spotless, not us. He does threat through the merits of the atonement, conditional on our repentance. Having spotless garments by virtue of the atonement, 
we may then sit down with the fathers of old, verse 25, in the kingdom of heaven. He calls for the peace of God to rest upon them, their possessions, and their families, verse 27. Alma then ends this magnificent sermon of our covenantal relationship with God and Christ with the terminal statement, and thus I have spoken, amen. Final section, summary and conclusions. Alma 7, 11-13 is usually treated as a standalone and doctrinally rich single unit. These comforting verses have offered hope and solace to millions of faithful truth seekers for almost 200 years. Some readers recognize that they form a complete chiasm. Surprisingly, though, the mention of the welcoming succoring of human suffering does not form the apex of the chiasm. As I have pointed out, the twin apex in chiasm 1 F-step is indeed the fact that Christ accomplished all, quote, according to the flesh, end quote. That lifelong condescension constitutes the mechanism by which the sucker comes. I have further demonstrated why this non-intuitive emphasis on the flesh is actually more appropriate and fitting than an emphasis on his succoring human pains and infirmities would have been. Finally, I've also addressed a second possible surprise in Alma 7. Alma closed the first chiasm with the phrase, and now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. This testimonial phrase has led some students of the Book of Mormon to the perception that the door shuts at that point and the sermon has concluded. Consequently, writers, teachers, and speakers have tended to treat Alma 7, 11-13 as an independent unit. However, building upon their appreciation of the contribution of these verses, I have suggested there is also great value in conceptualizing this chiasm as but one side of an even larger unit. There is a second chiasm in verses 14-15, through 15, which can be added to the chiasm of 11 through 13, thereby creating one even larger parallelistic structure. Taken together, the two chiasms can be viewed as two sides of a single, two-way covenantal relationship. Chiasm number one provides what Christ offers to us. Chiasm number two provides what we can offer to Christ. Elder Michael John U.T., a general authority 70, shared in a general conference address, quote, As I studied and pondered, I came to the stark realization that what I know about the Savior greatly outweighed how much I really know him. Understanding that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to us personally and individually will help us know him, end quote. Recognizing the importance of Christ's experiences according to the flesh and seeing the totality of all five verses as one comprehensive covenantal relationship helps us to do just that. Godfrey J. Ellis is a retired full professor of psychology. At retirement, he was serving as the director of the master's program in counseling psychology and the chair of the Department of Leadership 
and Counseling Psychology at a university in Western Washington. Dr. Ellis earned his BA in French from BYU, his MA in Family Relations from BYU, and his PhD in Family Sociology and Social Psychology from WSU. He has worked as a professor of family relations and or psychology for more than 36 years and as a private practice marriage and family therapist for 30 years. He was born in England, raised in Vancouver, Canada, then California, then Canada again, served a mission in France, and has taught in China. He and his wife, Mary Ellis, have lectured on the topic of family history on cruise ships sailing in the Caribbean up to Alaska and over to Hawaii, as well as lecturing at state and local family history fairs. He has published in the Ensign Magazine, now Liahona, BYU Studies, and Interpreter. He currently serves as the teacher of a two-stake institute program. He also paints acrylic portraits of friends, missionaries, and family. See GodfreyEllisArt.com. He and his wife are blessed with three living sons, four daughters-in-law, 12 living children, and one great-grandchild. This has been a recording of Experiential Knowledge and a Covenantal Relationship in Alma 7 by Godfrey J. Ellis, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 51, 2022, read by Godfrey J. Ellis. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.